this morning. I want to just go over that and uh, through that with you really quickly. Um, just a note on uh, Ash Wednesday in the morning. Uh, one of the powerful things, um, at least experiences that I've had, um, as Jane and I have imposed ashes on one another, because <laughs> we're the only two here in the morning sometimes. Uh, no, we're never just the only two. Anyway, you get what I mean. Um, it, it, it's an amazing thing to wear them throughout the day. Uh, so part of uh, the intention of the early morning, too, is for those of you who want to, to receive them before your work day or on the way to work. Um, because every time I, I use the washroom or whatever throughout the day and I look up and I'm like, what? Oh, yeah, it's Ash Wednesday. Um, it's just a reminder you're carrying something with you throughout the day. Uh, so if you would like to receive them on the way to work, uh, you don't even have to stop in for very long, but uh, Jane and I would love to share those with you. Uh, just real quickly, there is something that uh, we want to encourage one another to do over the course of the season of Lent, starting with Ash Wednesday this week. In the beginning of the year, uh, we encouraged or tried to encourage us to think or rethink or re-engage with the way uh, that we engage with Scripture. Uh, and so one of the things that we're going to do throughout Lent, uh, if you would like to take the opportunity to do this, is actually do some hand copying of Scripture. And so if you've never done this before, it's a really interesting practice, a very powerful practice. It's when, I don't know if you have recognized this, I actually like handwriting things more than I do typing them out. Uh, handwriting slows you down. Uh, it makes you think a little bit more about what you're saying and about what you're communicating. And so uh, the practice of hand copying scripture, actually in the monastic community before the advent of the printing press, this is what they would do with regularity. They would hand copy the scriptures or books or texts or those things. Um, and we're going to encourage one another in that practice throughout the season of Lent. Uh, so it's not going to be a whole book of the Bible, but what we've done is we've um, listed out dates and scripture passages for you to write each day beginning with Ash Wednesday and then leading up to Easter Sunday. We're using the Gospel of John. So in John 13 begins this kind of uh, movement of Jesus towards the cross. John 13 through 17 um, is this time that Jesus has with his disciples right before the time of the crucifixion. And so what we're going to do is hand copy that together. And so there's instructions that are on the front of that paper. Uh, and then on the back there is a kind of a list of days and times. There's catch-up days, too. Uh, so we try to make this as low pressure as possible. Um, but it's only, it works out to about six verses a day. Sometimes there's less than that. There's, I don't think there's ever more than six verses a day for you to hand copy. So it might take you 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 10 minutes. I'm not sure. It depends on how fast and how sloppy or neat you write, I suppose. Um, but uh, that begins on Wednesday, as you'll see with the date that is there. So hopefully uh, we can join together in, in this practice. Uh, today is Transfiguration Sunday. Uh, we can call it uh, Metamorpho Sunday, if you would like. Uh, that's the Greek word for transfiguration, or at least this translation in the book of Matthew. As you probably pick up on, it's where we get the word metamorphosis. Uh, which means to change or a change in the form or nature of a thing into a completely different one. 
Um, alongside this gospel text uh, that we find in Matthew, that word metamorpho uh, comes about in two other times uh, in the New Testament. Paul uses it once in Romans 12 too, when he talks about being transformed, metamorpho, by the renewing of your mind so that you might know what the, the good will of God is. And then in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he, he writes and he says, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed, metamorpho, into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is spirit. So this idea of transfiguration is this idea of being transformed, and hopefully, as we think about it today, it's not only something that happens to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, but it's something that we think about happening to us as well. Because part of the beauty of the gospel, part of the beauty of following Jesus, is that you and I are metamorphosed. There you go, put that on a t-shirt, right? We're being transformed. There is change that is taking place in us. And that change and that transformation is not altogether up to us, but it is an act and a work of God in which we can also participate. And so the transfiguration, uh, as we'll look at in the gospel text, is not just something that is happening to Jesus, but it's something that's happening to the disciples and it's something that's happening to us as God pulls back the curtain and reveals who God's self is in the person of Jesus. This Transfiguration Sunday, uh, where we're going to look at the gospel text, uh, the Transfiguration happening, it's about how Jesus as Lord and brother and teacher to not only the disciples, but to us too, is also Lord and King. I think one of the things that happens uh, for us is we, we have this familiarity that comes about over time with God or with Christ, where we become very familiar, kind of buddy-buddied with Jesus, which is completely good and fine. That is an aspect of relating to God through Christ. But then there's also this aspect where the curtain gets pulled back, the veil gets pulled back, and we realize who this person Jesus is. He's not just the buddy, he's not just the brother, he's not just the friend, he's not just the teacher, but he's the Lord and King of the universe. And so there's two transfigurations that actually happen within the scripture, and we're going to look at both of them this morning. One comes a long time before Jesus. It happens on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 24. Brad, if you want to put up that image uh, first, because I want us to kind of have this picture. Brian hinted at it before. I think there's a picture that's going to come up. should be a mountain that's red with a little stick figure, because I love stick figures. There we go. See the little guy on top of the mountain? His name is Moses. Anyway, uh, let's have this picture of this fire, this mountain, this cloud, and this man entering into it as we hear this reading of Scripture. And so Israel has come through the Red Sea to the base of this mountain, and this is what the book of Exodus tells us. 24 verses 12, 15 through 18. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me here on the mountain and stay here. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud 
as he went up on the mountain. And he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So if you're a part of the people of Israel, you've seen some pretty miraculous things within your recent history. You've seen the plagues against Egypt who has oppressed you and your people for 400 years. You've seen a massive sea, body of water part where you walk through it on dry land. And now you're at the base of this mountain and this quite intimidating cloud that looks like fire covering the mountain is descending upon it while you're at the base of it. And then you see all of the leaders of your people. If you go back and read just a little bit before, it's not just Moses that's going up there. It's not just Moses, Aaron, and Joshua who are going up there, but there's Nadab and Abihu, these priests, and also 70 of the elders who go up onto the mountain with Moses. Uh, So he's not alone. But Moses is the only one who enters the cloud. Now, if you and I were there, we would probably be with the people on the ground at the base of the mountain. We would be looking up at something that is dark and foreboding and intimidating and fear-inducing. Now, one of the reasons I think why it was so scary for the people as they looked up on this mountain is because they were simply unfamiliar with God in this way. It came from a place of unfamiliarity. This was God as they had not yet known God to be. If you remember, this is a people who's passed down traditions verbally. This is oral tradition that's been passed down to them, and they've been in slavery for 400 years. So whatever experiences that they've had as a part of the people of God up until that point have been words that have been told to them about their ancestors and about God's promise to Abraham, but they find themselves in slavery. And so they hold these two things in tension. They're like, our, 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 our ancestry and the promises are good and wonderful, but at the same time, I'm making bricks for Pharaoh and I'm building these things and I'm building his kingdom and we're being oppressed as we're doing it. And so they're holding these things together. They've never really experienced God in this powerful of a way. And and it's happened for them in a few subsequent moments, time after time after time again. And so the Israelites stand at the base of the mountain. And then there goes up their leader, the one who uh, helped deliver them from the oppression of Egypt And the other leaders, the 70 elders, go with him, and they go up towards this fiery cloud. Nobody wants to go up. There's a small group of people that go up. And then they see their leader not only go up, but then kind of break off from the pack and enter into the fire. How can Moses do this? It doesn't give any commentary really on why Moses is so gutsy and brave uh, or maybe stupid to go and do such a thing. But from the Israelites' perspective, they're seeing their leader enter what looks like this cloud of burning fire. Why? For Moses, this wasn't the first time that he has seen a fire on this particular mountain. And so years and years before, uh, in fact, what led up to this moment, not years before, actually, in, in somewhat recent history, Moses had experienced the fire on this mountain already. Uh, Most of us know the story of the burning bush. Uh, And and when you read the book of Exodus, it talks about the burning bush being on Mount Horeb. And it talks about this, the, the people being on the base of Mount Sinai. Those two mountains are actually one mountain. They're just interchangeable names. 
And so Moses had encountered uh, kind of a small personal fire on this mountain already. It came after 40 years, tradition has it, that he wandered the desert, not wandering the desert, but cared for sheep, acted as a shepherd in the desert after he fled from Egypt, after he killed an Egyptian. And after those 40 years, he sees this fire and, and there's a voice that comes out of the fire and tells him that he's standing on holy ground, he's to take off his sandals, and he encounters God. And he encounters God after those 40 years of sitting with what it meant to be an abandoned child to the, to the uh, Egyptian system. He's raised in the system by his mother, uh, by his family, but within this system, his identity is within this system while his people are suffering. And then he sits with this feeling of having killed someone, as if that was the way that deliverance was going to come about. And so after all of that internal struggle, and this is what the desert and, and, and often what 40 in general, days or years, represents throughout the scripture, is this time when the life of the person or the people gets sorted out, where they are tested or they are tried. Now, you might think that language to be kind of cruel, but all of us, I think, as part of our lives, need that inner world to be tested and to be tried so we know what is of value, what is good, what is godly, and what is not. And so these 40 years Moses spends in this desert tending sheep, and then he finally comes to this burning bush. And that is the reason that he can enter into that cloud, because it's not something that he hasn't seen before. It's something that he's actually experienced. It's something he's become familiar with to a degree. He's known God in this way, and it's no longer... Uh, a subject or an object of fear to him. It's, it's, he's, he's participating in the invitation of God to enter his presence as it is on the mountain. So the people, you and I, are seeing this from the ground for the first time, and it's awesome and fear-inducing, but Moses has already seen this kind of thing, and he enters into what we would see to be the fire of God. This is the first mount of transfiguration. The second mountain we find in the Gospel of Matthew, which is our reading for this morning. And this is the place where the curtain is pulled back and where the disciples see uh, for maybe one of the first times the, the, the bigger reality of who Jesus is. So follow along with me in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. After six days, Jesus took with him uh, Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured and metamorpho before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's great for us to be here. You know that guy or that girl who just like interrupts the conversation with something that you just shouldn't really say? That's Peter in this moment. Lord, it's great for us to be here. If you wish, we'll put up three shelters, which is uh, just a place that um, would mean they would be staying for a bit. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. 
While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, another bright cloud. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. So for however many years Peter, James, and John have gotten to know Jesus, this Jesus that they've gotten to know is revealed to them in a completely different way. The thin veil between heaven and earth parts and opens up, and here Moses and Elijah, these these two historical figures within uh, the people of Israel's history, appear to him and start talking to Jesus. And Pastor Brian had a great insight as we were talking about this this week. Um, he said that the, Moses represents the law, Elijah represents the prophets, and then there you have Jesus. Remember Jesus saying that I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets, not to do away with them, but to fulfill them. And so this is bringing those things together. And so it's hard to imagine something like this happening in front of us, this person becoming radiant and shining, um, uh, their clothes gleaming white. I don't know exactly what this experience looks like, uh, but it's happening right in front of Peter. And so what's his response? It is good for us to be here, is one thing he says. And he says, let us make the shelters for you. Notice the trajectory here. It's about what he thinks he can do for God. When this is God, what, uh, something that God is doing for them. And so in responding to Peter's offer to do something for Jesus, the voice of God, so the voice of the Father, not the voice of Jesus, but the voice of the Father, speaks affirming words of Jesus and then says to the disciples who want to do something for Jesus, this is what God tells them, just listen to him. When the voice speaks, the disciples drop to the ground in fear. Like the Israelites who were unfamiliar with God's manifest presence, the disciples were not familiar with the voice of the Father either. And this unfamiliarity, again, brought about initial fear. It's not that they didn't know God. It's not that these disciples didn't know God. They had been trained in Torah just like all the other Israelite boys would have been trained, Jewish boys would have been trained in Torah. They knew the stories, they knew the scriptures, but they never met God in this way before. In this scene, they see a radically transformed Jesus. And they hear the voice of the invisible God and they fall down to their face and they're terrified. And then this beautiful thing happens. I can imagine them with their faces to the ground. They're kind of freaking out. They don't know quite what to do. Peter's like, I really shouldn't have said anything. And, and then they look up and Jesus, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Get up. Don't be afraid. And all the light and maybe the thunderous voice and all that, all that is gone, it's dissipated, and all they see is Jesus. I think that's quite remarkable because you have this huge revelation of who God is to these three men. 
And then as they're completely freaked out by the moment, when they finally come to and open their eyes and look up, all they see is Jesus. And so you have this both and that we hold hand in hand. You have this glory and this manifest presence of God that is behind the veil, so to speak, of the person of Jesus that is overwhelming for you and I and anybody who would encounter it. There's this overwhelming nature of God that causes us to fall on our face, to fall on, our ground, to fall on the ground. But then you have this Christ also who says, get up. Don't be afraid. Do you see the mixture of fear and this message of not being afraid, both for the people of Israel and Moses as he ascends into the cloud and then the disciples here in this instance? When God's manifest glory is revealed to God's people, whether it be three or a whole nation, there is this overwhelming sense of, of what it means. But then we get to the person of Jesus who says, you know what? Okay, that is true. God is this. I am this. But I'm also coming to you in a way that you can understand that does not induce fear to you. I am here. Don't be afraid. Get up. And perhaps they listen to the voice that says, okay, now it's time just to listen to him. So we have the greatness of God that is revealed, and they're humbled. And all of their efforts on what they might do for God, God, I want to do this for you. I want to build this for you. You have that on one hand, this greatness of God on one hand, and then the simplicity of the message of Jesus on the other. Don't be afraid. Get up. Um, I want to close our, our time together by talking about something that's been uh, quite in the news, um, well, in certain news channels. It hasn't made mainstream. Um, I don't know if you've heard it or not, uh, but there's been transfiguration types of events happening uh, throughout college campuses in the U.S. Uh, going on 10 days. Um, some use the term revival, some use the term renewal or awakening. Um, it, from what I gather and what I've read, it started on February 8th, about 11 o'clock, in Wilmore, Kentucky, which I've never been to, but I hear it is literally a two-stop light town. Um, there is Asbury College, um, which is a, a Methodist school. Um, if, if, if there are some of you who have uh, like baggage with the, the term revival, just hang for me, uh, hang with me for a minute. But um, since since February 8th, there has been people in that particular location uh, praying and singing and actually being quiet 24 hours a day um, since, since the beginning. Uh, it's no longer a student thing. There are thousands of people who <laughs> have literally descended upon this two-stoplight town uh, because they are desiring uh, an encounter with God that seems to be happening there. It's moved from Asbury. Um, I've been keeping track uh, of my own alma mater, uh, which is Lee University, which is in the uh, southern part of Tennessee. Um, and, and there's been things that have been happening there too, just kind of a renewal that's been happening there. I've, um, I, I've watched uh, what's interesting in this day and age is Asbury had a revival in 1973, I think, and you know it took newspapers and mail to report such things. Now it's TikTok. Um, so things spread, information disseminates much, uh, 
much quicker. But I was able to view like one of the things that was happening at Lee and it, their chapel was absolutely packed and there was not an instrument going on but the place, the, the roof was just blown off by worship. Students gathering, just worshiping God together. Um, and it's spread beyond Lee and, and, um, and Asbury. Uh, personally and pastorally, I hold uh, some tensions together. I like holding tensions together. I think that's actually one of the rules of the people of God in the world. Um, but I like holding tensions together. Um, on one hand, I, I've found and I believe uh, that following Jesus happens over the long, long haul with a number of ups and downs, countless ones, fits and starts, questions and answers. Um, and I think the large part of our life of discipleship is just that, it's faithfulness uh, in the midst of, of those things. And I believe that in the midst of this long haul, uh, there is plenty of room to create space for questions. I believe that faith in Jesus is big enough to hold the doubts and the questions that we have as we continue on in our journey of following Jesus. One of the things that, that we strive to do here is to be a safe place where people can ask questions and have doubts and explore their faith and struggle along the way. Fail forward is one of the ways uh, Chris Green puts it. And so I believe these things with my entire heart. I believe in faithfulness. I believe in the long haul. I believe in rooms for doubts and questions. And I also believe that the veil can be pulled back and that God can show up in an instant. In an undeniable way where we experience God directly. Um, because of my experience, there, there is not a day that I get up, nor a, a Sunday that I get up, where there's not some sort of expectation and hope that somehow today might be a day where I experience God in that way, and that you experience God in that way. There have been a few gracious moments in my life where God's pulled that veil back for me. Um, there is a season, and I stand before you today because of one of those times. Um, there was a season in my life of faith, again, growing up in the church um, and being familiar with the tradition. There, there is a difference between being familiar with the tradition, growing up in the tradition of the church, being familiar with the tradition of the church, and being an eyewitness. Eyewitness, there is something that you bear witness to. There is an experience that you have, and I'm not arguing for experientialism or anything like that, but there is just some sort of encounter that you have with God where you bear witness to something. And so for a couple years in, in, in my life from age 16 to 18 or so, um, there is a struggle that I had significantly um, with God, um, with what God wanted from me, with how I understood God, all of those things. It was, it was a deep wrestling. And then in October of 1996, just uh, the fall after I graduated from high school, I was at Millersville University at the time, my freshman year, and my friends and I were about to go camping, and um, they wanted to stop off at this church service beforehand, which I was fine with, amicable too, 
And so we, we went into the city. Uh, I can't tell you which church it was. Older, older historic church in the city. And I walk in, and there's music that I'm unfamiliar with, and there's an old gray-haired guy who's dancing across the front. I'm like, what is this? Um, and so I just stand there, and I kind of observe. Um, and, and, and I'm skeptical. I'm even more skeptical when the person who gets up to talk is about a year older than I am, but looks like he's two years younger than I am. Uh, but then I'm sitting in this space, and I, I, can't, I, I can't put words to it. Um, but over the course of just sitting in that space, all the questions that I had been asking, all the battles over will, all the sin stuff that I've been struggling with, it, there was some extraordinary encounter with God that changed the direction of my life forever. And it set the trajectory of my life. That encounter is why I'm here today. It continues to be a, a moment of metamorphosis for me. And throughout my life, I've had a few other kinds of moments where it feels like God just pulls the curtain back for a moment, either to, to, to give me something that I need to hear to address something in my heart or in my life, or to somehow communicate God's love for me, or to somehow empower me to get past something that I couldn't get on my own. There have been a few of those times in my life where it seems like the curtain has been pulled back, where God cuts through my skepticism and all the hurdles, all the intellectual hurdles that I put up. Now, friends, I'm, I'm, I don't... If there are those of you who've been following Jesus for a long time or a short time or whatever, who've never had an experience with God that seems transcendent, I, I, I'm not arguing for or saying, you know what, there's something wrong with you. That, that is not my point whatsoever because I think all of us experience God in different ways. I'm not arguing for the same experience. But what I hope and want to encourage us with and what I hope we do have as God's people is expectancy and maybe even hope of the possibility that God will show up among us in ways that are beyond us. I think this to be true, that there will come a day when all of our thoughts about God Perhaps when all of our theology and our traditions and our doubts and our question will come before the manifest majesty of God and where all of those things will be surrendered to God. In the end, when God, out of his mercy and love, chooses to reveal the fullness of himself to us, I think the only thing that we're going to be able to do is to humble ourselves and to surrender and to worship him in a life of obedience. So there's something extraordinary that's happening um, in pockets across our country. 
It doesn't mean we have to duplicate or McDonaldize it. Um, but I think it's good for us to be aware that in the midst of all the sermons that we give and all the prayers that we pray and all the times that we show up the church and all those different things, that sometimes God just pulls the veil back and says, bam, this is who I am. And it's not so, so we can go up and do great things for God, it's so we can humble ourselves before God. It's interesting to me that in this, what's happening now, is it, it's, it's not loud. I mean, sometimes the singing is loud, but there are moments of deafening silence where people are just quiet before God. There's quiet weeping just as people bring themselves before the presence of God. So on this Transfiguration Sunday, where we're reminded um, that God desires to transform us, not to look at the cloud with fear, but to walk into it, to get up and to follow Jesus. I'm wondering if we can do this together and this can be the kind of people that we are. On one hand, and probably most days, we continue together in faithfulness, encouraging each other when we're just not feeling it. Anybody have those days? We can continue to create a gracious and a safe place for people to ask questions and to hold doubts. And we can also acknowledge that we're not getting together every week to bat around some ideas. But we're a people that hopes to and wants to and desires to and maybe even expects to encounter God. That we might be a people that expects God to show up in metamorphosizing ways and change us in ways that are beyond us. And so I wonder if we as a congregation can hold these things together. The faithfulness of the daily grind of faith and this expectancy that maybe one day, every now and then, when God knows that we need it the most or in God's mercy, he just does it. Where God pulls back the veil and just blesses us with the presence of his spirit. Would you pray with me as we prepare to receive communion together? Lord, the parts of us that are fearful of you, I wonder if they're not the parts of us that need to be healed by you. the parts of us that we just want to hold to ourselves, to not surrender, to not submit, to not be cleansed from. God, I pray for us as we follow you, Jesus, that we would become people who can walk into your presence, 
We can take the journey on the mountain. We can see what some appear to be fire, Lord. But for us, it's a thing of beauty because you are among us. God, I pray that you would be with us as a people. Lord, on one hand, as every day, we do what we can to be faithful in following you, to receive from you daily bread. to ask the questions that we have to bring our doubts and our questions to you. And also, Lord, would you help us to be a people who are open and hopeful and expectant for the veil to be, to, to be pulled back, for heaven and earth to, to kiss, so to speak, and for your presence to be manifest among us, Lord. May both of those things describe our hearts and our experience as your people. Would you join me? Let's pray the Lord's Prayer together as we prepare to receive from the table this morning. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.